We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their continuing connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Howdy FISO fans! Happy National Science Week! Welcome to Season 2 of Actually, It's Phytoplankton, the kids' podcast series about oceanography and diarrhea. I'm Jamie Cool from GoToQ Remote Sensing, and I am so excited to be back. Wait! No, 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 no. It's not about diarrhea, just oceanography. Hi, I'm Lachlan McKinna, and also from GoToQ Remote Sensing, Ivana and I have our reputations as oceanographers to maintain, you know. We Sorry. can't just talk about poop all the time. <laughs> And on that note, I am Ivona Tetanich from USRA based at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center Ocean Ecology Lab. And I think after all that poop talk last season, our reputations are permanently damaged. Definitely permanently damaged. Well, time to do a little more damage, guys. We talked a lot about poop last season, but our podcast is science gold, my friends. I'm seriously pumped to be back for a second season. I've missed you, my science buddies, my podcast pals. I am so glad to have you back. And it's National Science Week. That's right. All our season two episodes are being released for National Science 2021. We've got so much amazing science to share with you. So let's start with explaining what we're all about here in season two. Firstly, if you're just discovering our podcast now, I recommend that you go back to season one and get to know us a bit. Learn about our focus from last year, which was ocean ecology and NASA's PACE mission, not poop, although you could definitely be mistaken that the focus was poop. (laughs) This season, we're bringing you six science lessons on oceanography in podcast form. From now on, I only eat my science lessons in podcast form. Simpsons reference. It actually is phytoplankton, planet ocean, and there's plenty more random pop culture references and poop culture references from Jamie that no one gets except for her. (laughs) There's literally no stopping me. This season we'll cover topics including arts and science, the oceanic food web, the carbon cycle, ocean acidification, the physics of light in water, and our final episode is a set of guided experiments for you to try at home or at school. Ivana and I will drop in from time to time to help Jamie host, and we've got an incredible prize to give away. Whoa. We are giving our podcast fans a chance to win an Oculus Quest VR headset, including the game Ocean Rift. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. It's the world's first VR aquatic safari park. Jamie will give you the information on how to enter the competition at the end of this episode. So you guys... Why have we changed the subtitle of our show to Planet Ocean? Well, we're branching out a bit this year. Last year, we learned all about NASA's PACE mission and the teeny tiny algae called phytoplankton that scientists will continue to study using the advanced technology on the PACE satellite. And this year, we wanted to share more oceanography topics with you. Yeah, our home planet is covered by 71% ocean, accounting for... 97% of the world's water. Whoa, that's a lot of water. That is a lot. (laughs) (laughs) By rights, we live on planet ocean, not planet Earth. Water and our oceans are the basis for all life, with our friend phytoplankton at the bottom of the food web there providing energy for all of us and cycling carbon from the atmosphere without us even noticing. 
Uh, quick reminder, you guys, what the heck are phytoplankton? They are teeny tiny plant-like organisms that you can find anywhere in a well-lit ocean. Um, if you take a drop of water anywhere in the ocean, you're going to find thousands of these little creatures and hundred different types of them. They're extremely responsible, important because they produce half of the oxygen that we breathe. They're based on most of the marine food web and they control the climate and therefore controlling our home. So that's phytoplankton. Very cool. All right, let's get started on our first lesson and make sure you jump onto our website, go to curious.com for a free resource pack about this episode. Today is all about the history and future of arts in science. Jamie. You're particularly excited about this one. I am. I'm stoked to be starting off this season with something I'm really, really passionate about. So one of the many hats that I wear is theatre artist. And I get very excited when I see artsy stuff that helps explain science. Now, one story that springs to mind is when I saw a tiny peacock spider in our veggie garden recently. And the reason I was able to quickly identify this little dude and know that it was a very special spider was thanks to Queensland Museum and their giant peacock spider puppet named Webster, who is created and operated by artists. So we have two amazing guests today that will help us explain how you can be a sciencey artist or an artsy scientist. And we were just thinking before we jumped on this call that we're talking to an American in Germany and a German in America. That's right. <laughs> in this episode. So first off, we're joined by Kirsten Carlson from Fathomit Studios in Germany. Hi. Hi, Kirsten. Hi, you guys. I'm super excited to be celebrating Science Week with you guys and sharing everything I love about sci-art today. Kirsten is an artist and science communicator who has spent her career exploring the undersea world and sharing its beauty and wonder through visual arts practice. All right, Kirsten, it's our tradition that we start with this question. What did you want to be when you were 13? Well, I've actually gone full circle with my life. At 13, I totally wanted to be an artist, and one of my heroes was Walt Disney. So I spent a lot of time drawing cartoons. In the U.S. at 13 is when we also get exposed to our first science class, like the teacher's break off and you get a class in English, a class in math, a class in science. And so it was also that year that I started getting bit by the bug of being a scientist. But it wasn't until a few years later that I was interested in that as a career. So did you become a scientist first? No, I would say I was an artist first, but my education after high school was all focused on science. So I was convinced that I could change the world and make it better through science by the time I was in high school, by the time I was 16, and I was very focused on becoming the best scientist I could be. So what's your job now and how did you get there? So as you introduced me, uh, you mentioned that I uh, own Fathomit Studios. And so I am self-employed and started that business so that I could use all these skills that I love that keep one foot in science and one foot in art. So I actually am a artist. I am a scientist. I am a graphic designer, a photographer, and a children's book author, author illustrator, all to convey the beauty and wonder of nature through the lens of science and art. Our son actually has a copy of one of the children's books that Kirsten illustrated. It's called Ocean Seasons and it's just gorgeous. Oh yes, and he loves to say kelp, kelp. Mummy, what's that? Kelp. Mummy, what's that? Kelp. That's fantastic. I'm I'm overjoyed to hear that he <laughs> loves it. So, what can you tell us about the history of art and science? 
Well, it's interesting that you ask that because um, when I give presentations, I often start by saying that historically we've been doing science and art together since I often show a picture of the Les Cow Caves in France. And what's important about that is I think that humans are really storytellers. And so putting pictures together with descriptions of our world has been important for tens of thousands of years as a species. So that's really when the history of science and art began to me. So thinking about those who first documented the natural world makes me remember that Indigenous Australians, that's our First Nations people, are the original Sci Art Trailblazers. If you take a look in our resource pack for this episode, there's a picture of a bilby. If you've not heard of a bilby out there in podcast universe, you must do yourself a favor and go look them up. They are properly cute little nocturnal creatures native to Australia. So cute. So very cute. <laughs> hey, Kirsten, have you heard of bilbies? I haven't, and I've never been to Australia, but I'm guessing it's possibly a marsupial. Am I right? It's, yes, it's definitely Correct. a marsupial. Yep, like most of our it's It's kind of are. like, <laughs> so like a, a, a miniature, a tiny miniature kangaroo with really big ears and a cute pointy nose, and they hop about eating, I guess, grubs and insects and, and stuff. And ants. They like ants, yeah. I'm pretty sure. So what's really cool is when I've never heard of an animal before, like the bilby, the first thing I do is I go to my library and I look at I look at my books to see if I have any reference material on them. So I actually have a book on mammals of Australia. And I'd like to share with you guys, if you go to the resources, a sketchbook page that shows what I learned about bilbies because of your question regarding bilbies. So I'm excited to share that with you and to the listeners. Anyway, in Australia, instead of getting a visit from the Easter Bunny, we get a visit from the Easter Bilby. Now, the Bilby image in our resource pack is a tracing of a rock painting found in Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory, thought to be between 6,000 and 9,400 years old. That's a long time ago. It's very, very old. The Bilbies are part of a group of artworks called the Maliwawa figures, which I hope I'm saying right, but if I'm not, please... Um, correct me on social media or I'm happy to hear your feedback. But what's extra special about the bilby drawings is that nowadays bilbies are not known to live in Arnhem Land. So these incredible images hold clues to the historical changes in the area's landscape and the ecosystem, at least according to Smithsonian Magazine, which is where I read this. Jamie, you know this, but I grew up in a place called Cooktown, which is in North Queensland. Mm -hmm. And when I was a kid, I was lucky enough to visit the Quinkin Rock Art site in Laura, which is not far away. The artwork in these famous sites was estimated at being between 15 and 30,000 years old. That's really old. Yeah, yeah. There are depictions of people, wildlife, and spiritual beings known as Quinkins. Now, these ancient sites are amazing. You can stand and view the artwork that depicts the natural environment and landscapes and appreciate how Indigenous people understood their surroundings and created knowledge for the next generation through illustration. Mm -hmm. On the flip side of that, British explorer James Cook, naturalist Joseph Banks, and illustrator Sidney Parkinson got shipwrecked in Cooktown. Oh, no. So <laughs> I come from a place that is pretty significant to Australia's sci art history. As an illustrator, who from the sci art past inspired you, Kirsten? Well, Actually, James Cook and uh, the naturalist Joseph Banks interest me greatly. They were some of our first explorers that were going out and bringing people along that could record and collect 
information. So very much like the drawings you guys were talking about of the indigenous people, these people were along to help with the recording and documentation of, of our planet. And my favorite explorer, or I should say scientific illustrator, is actually from a couple hundred years before then. He happens to be German. His name is Albrecht Dürer. And we'll I'll definitely provide some resources with my heroes so that we can share those with the public. Albrecht Dürer, um, by day, was a religious painter. And by night, and I say this loosely, he was a scientific illustrator, although they didn't use that term at the time. So he was one of the first people ever to draw a walrus very badly, by the way, because he used a specimen that probably was not very well preserved, or f- he did it from descriptions. And then uh, a newer person that I'm, that who is also German, this is all coincidence that I live <laughs> in Germany, but um, it's Ernst Haeckel, who is, uh, was around after James Cook and his explorations, but he did some magnificent things with the invention of the microscope. He drew many tiny animals and um, plankton through microscope, and it blows my mind how accurate he could be. So he's one of my ultimate fans, and somebody will focus on more in the future. What sprung to my mind, I, I started thinking about a lot of the um, the old medical textbooks and the mm. illustrations and how, you know, to record anatomy, you actually had to get someone who was good yeah. at illustration. So Kirsten, you've been on some absolutely amazing adventures as an artist at sea for your work. Can you tell us about some of the more special experiences you've had doing your job? Every time that I go into my scientific illustrator mode, I have an amazing experience. It all starts with field sketching, believe it or not. So to talk briefly about the artist at sea experience, I will say that being on a ship for several weeks with a bunch of scientists, I felt I was in my element. It was fantastic. And one of the most wonderful things that happened was not only was I inspired by the scientists and the work they were doing and the subject of their work, which was plankton, I also inspired them with my creative work because I was looking at their information, their data, their day-to-day collections with a slightly different perspective. And that's one of the most special experiences that I go after every time I'm on a quote-unquote job or a project. And it shows up because joining science and art for me really allows me to connect emotionally with a subject and get super passionate, excited about it. And then my analytical brain also really enjoys it, especially when I'm interacting with scientists, because I'm trained as a scientist and I speak scientist. I often ask questions that bring us to a new level of inquiry, which is really what science is all about. Oh, you mentioned about field sketching. So I'm not an artist and I don't understand that. So what is a field sketch? A field sketch is sketch that you do when you're out and about in nature, thus the field word. But I will say that sometimes I cheat and field could actually just be me in a coffee shop doing a sketch outside my studio. So it's keeping a book of multiple pages, usually with, for me personally, it's a mixture of drawings and journal notes. So I often call them illuminated journals. And it's something that I encourage everyone I talk to who's interested in science and art to start doing, and that is keeping a field sketchbook. Keeping a sketchbook is not about being a good artist. It's about recording observations. And it's so important. It's so, so important for, I'm on a quest to encourage every human being that I come in contact with through things like this 
to embrace their inner creative and their inner curious soul and keep a journal, an illuminated journal or a sketchbook, because it helps so much with understanding your place in the world. It's of vital importance because we have come to this place in our society where we think artists are these magical beings that can just draw really well, which is not true. And we think scientists can solve all our problems, which is also not true. I would like to encourage everyone to embrace and find their inner scientist and their inner artist. Those are just labels, though, for the deeper connection we have with the world. Um, Science is really about being curious, being observant of what's going on around you, not walking with your face in an iPhone or in a phone, sorry, Apple, (laughs) not walking with your face (laughs) looking down at a personal device, but looking out at the world around you. And being an artist is about recording that. If you want to be a professional artist, of course, you have to learn skills, which are really just like being a scientist. There are skill sets you learn to be able to connect and communicate what you see to other people. It's just scientists are a little more analytical and artists are a little more creative. And bringing those two together, a person can be both creative and analytical. So Kirsten, you actually know Ivana and the other podcast regulars, Ryan and Amy, from season one, because you're an artist at sea on the RV Falcor for the Sea to Space cruise, which happened a few years back. I'm guessing that my oceanographer friends made you draw phytoplankton all the live long day. So what sort of techniques did you use to draw things that are microscopic? Wow, that's an amazing question. So the first part of that is I actually got everybody on that ship to draw plankton. Some of them had never done that before. And I would like to share some of those drawings with you. I still have them. They're great. And the techniques on board a ship, I actually, if you go to the Schmidt Ocean Institute's page for our cruise, um, I have a whole thing about what it's like to draw on a moving rolling ship. So I actually had to adapt quite a bit. Um, I did perfect some techniques, but I did uh, look through a scope, but I'm prone to seasickness. So I would have to look through the scope and then pause, look through the scope and then pause, all the while cussing Ernst Haeckel because he somehow drew magnificent things. And I will give you a, I will share in our resources a sketchbook page from our cruise that shows what I drew through a microscope during one of those Look, pause, don't get seasick. Look, pause, don't get seasick moments. (laughs) Oh, man, I get so badly seasick. We talked a lot about it in season one. I don't know how you could add looking through a microscope and drawing tiny things to that when feeling sick. Makes me feel sick thinking about it. But what I want to know is what was the point of doing that? So why, if we can see things through microscopes and we can take pictures of things through microscopes, why do we still need hand-drawn illustrations? That's another fantastic question. So the importance of photographs, especially photographs on a microscopic level, are not to be undersold. They are incredibly important. But when an illustrator takes a look at something and illustrates it, they are taking a composite of multiple images, whereas a photograph is one moment in time of one particular individual. And for example, any guidebook or any book that talks about species identification characteristics, it can't just be an individual. It's got to be the type, the, the way the animal looks in general. And so that's one of the main reasons illustrators have been important through time before photography and are even important today is that we can create those images in our minds through multiple photographs. And then the other really important thing is that we can also communicate 
concepts that a photograph might not be able to convey. I have done a carbon cycle that no photographer could capture because it doesn't exist in a photographable space. So that's why that's so important. And any advice to our young listeners who might be thinking that it could be interesting to become a scientific illustrator? Yes, my most important advice is to get a sketchbook and start making observations of the world around you. It can't, it doesn't have to be a good drawing, but I can actually encourage you to start with writing what you see and then maybe do some doodles or some drawings of what you see. And you'll be amazed at how the world opens up to you. So National Science Week is all about food. So we want to know from you, what's your favorite food and how can you connect that back to phytoplankton? This is such a tough question because I just love all food. I love all Um, food. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that my favorite food is steak. And I'm not a vegetarian, but I do try to eat happy steak, which for me means that I eat steak that hopefully comes from a cow that was raised in a field that ate grass that was not sprayed with pesticides. And those pesticides didn't run down the river into the ocean and didn't affect the planktonic organisms that live in the sea. So in general, I love um, eating food where I can kind of visualize the chain of food back to the ocean because everything is connected through the ocean. We've got a copy of the children's book, Ocean Seasons, to give away this week. It's a really beautiful book illustrated by Kirsten and perfect for kids about two plus. Our little person owns a copy and just absolutely loves it. Jump onto our socials at Go to Curious to find out how you could score a copy of Ocean Seasons. Yoo-hoo. So thanks so much for joining us, Kirsten. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. It was an absolute pleasure on my end too. So happy Science Week. We're actually going to be doing a live art lesson with Kirsten on Thursday of National Science Week. That's the 19th of August. And if you're in the Toowoomba area, you can actually come along to that. So please jump on our website and find out more about how you can grab a ticket. It's free. So it's time to take a break, which means it's time for you to pause and do our sci-art activity before listening to the rest of the show. Find it in our free resource pack. Go to curious.com slash resources. Go find it now. Pause. Draw. Hopefully you paused and took some time to do our sci-art activity. As always, please share the photos with us on our socials at GoToCurious. Hey, Jamie. Yes? What's your favourite video game? Well, I'm a bit obsessed with Nintendo's Zelda franchise. If I could, I would stay home all day in one of those gaming chairs, wear my sweatpants and play Zelda. The last time I finished uni, I probably played for a month like every day and I only ate peanut butter pretzels. Definitely glad you snapped out of that. Yeah. <laughs> so my favourite is Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Do they even make that anymore, Lockie? <laughs> hey, once a video game is made, always made. What system is that even for? Uh, Sega Mega Drive 2. <laughs> two. <laughs> no, it could be played on one. <laughs> and um, I also like the Sega Daytona cars where you get to sit in the seat and drive those around. That's been around for years. It never gets old. Oh, and while I'm talking about driving, Mario Kart. Love oh, it. Mario Kart, classic Nintendo. Exactly. <laughs> I'm saying Sega and Nintendo, 
I also drove around in Tokyo once in real life in a Mario-like cart. Mario Kart-ish. Mario Kart-ish. <laughs> and I wore like a full-on monster costume. It was so much fun. I'm going to show Ben and our listeners at home a picture of that. Um, I'll pop it up on our socials, but here it is. He's oh, in a monster costume. Cool. That's, me in front of, <laughs> that's me in front of the Tokyo Sky Tree. Did you make it yourself? <laughs> no, you get when you when you turn up, you they give you allocate your car, and it was it was actually middle of winter, so it was cold, and they give you glove and jackets, and they're like, from this rack of costumes, pick what you want to be. There was like, um, <laughs> they were kind of non-proprietary, like I would say, <laughs> turtle costumes and mushroom costumes and various monsters. Yeah, it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. But cool. I did have to um, sign a disclaimer. Like I literally, this is no joke, I had to sign a disclaimer about, you know, and a waiver if you injure yourself doing some stupid whatever. But it actually said in there, do not throw bananas at people <laughs> in the street. <laughs> <laughs> or at other vehicles. <laughs> so I will be definitely adding the picture of Lachlan dressed in a Mario Kart-ish costume onto our socials <laughs> at Go to Curious. I, also, while I think about it, I actually played my first virtual reality game recently. You know, it was a space robot thing. We went into a big hall. We put on the goggles and and uh, ran around firing at each other. Right. Did you enjoy that? Totally. It was so much fun. I, I had never done anything like that before. I really enjoyed it. Well, Lachlan, seeing as you like playing virtual reality games, I think you'll enjoy talking to our next expert guest, Dr. Ben Knoylein from Brown University in the USA, who was also one of the scientists sailing on the RV Falcor with Ivana and Kirsten a couple of years ago. Ben, welcome to Actually, it's Phytoplankton Planet Ocean. Hi. Hey, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So we've been just talking with Kirsten Carlson about the history of art in science and the very awesome work that she does as a scientific illustrator. Now, Ben is joining us because he is a computery guy who does this cool stuff called visio-haptic augmented reality. So, Lockie, I'm pretty sure that Ben is actually from the future and he's travelled back to talk to us on Actually It's Phytoplankton, like the Terminator. But the good Terminator after he's been reprogrammed. Sure. Happy happy one. (laughs) Happy Terminator. (laughs) Ben, let's start with what you wanted to be when you were 13 and please don't say cyborg assassin from the year 2029. Actually, you know, when I was around 13 years old, I really loved cyberpunk. So Cyborg Assassin was actually kind of one of my career choices. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. (laughs) You you know, I had a more realistic backup plans. And I I would say that was to become an inventor. So I really loved building things. I I really liked tinkering with things, especially when it became to technology, computers. And what is it that you do now? Well, you know. Becoming a cyborg did not really work out, so I stuck kind of with the, with the backup plan and became a software developer. Um, okay. Mainly I was working in virtual and augmented reality, but basically also other other areas of computer science, like uh, computer vision, um, basically everything which involves in some way an image and three-dimensional data. And as you mentioned before, I did my PhD on visio-haptic augmented reality. That means I basically created virtual objects being in the real world. So you can see them by wearing some fancy goggles. You, you can touch them by having some robotic device, um, which stops when you touch them. So Ben, this podcast is called Actually It's Phytoplankton. So it should come as no surprise that we want to talk to you because you've done stuff with phytoplankton scientists like Ivana to see if you can make their science better by using types of virtual reality technology in their research. But let's go with the basics first. What is virtual reality? The basic idea of virtual reality is that you simulate some sensory feedback uh, of a virtual world, and then you feed it back to the user 
so that it seems as if this virtual world would be real. In most cases, it's basically just visual. So that means the user has basically a display in front of their, their eyes, and the virtual world is drawn on that. The idea which really makes it immersive and really makes it feel like it exists is that depending on where the user looks, the images change. Of course, you also have some special controllers with which you can grab and interact in the world. You can walk around. And that's basically the, the basic idea of virtual reality. So how is VR being used to teach people about science? So as I mentioned before, the best way to use VR to teach people is to simply immerse them in new and unfamiliar environments, which they would never have the chance to see. So basically, it's a guided excursion to wherever you want to be. You can walk around on the moon or the Mars at one point, and then a couple of minutes later, you explore the bottom of the ocean, a mine pyramid or an Egyptian temple. And also, apart from places, it can also showcase history. So you can go back to medieval times and check how times looked at that point. In a lot of cases, VR is really so immersive that it becomes much more personal experience than just reading books or watching films. And in this context, there's also some interesting research happening which showed that VR can really be used to develop empathy as the user is not just separated from what he sees, but he's really part of it. And then for some applications, there's also like some fun lab environments for physics and chemistry. And as an example, you can do chemistry experiments without having the danger of poisoning yourself or, or blowing yourself up. So what are some ways that virtual reality is being used in the ocean sciences? So from my point of view, virtual reality is a really great tool for education, especially when you, when you can't really reach the places, when they're really hard to reach. And that's, of course, in oceanography, underwater ecosystems are really hard to reach. So as a result, a lot of projects used VR to, to just present interactive environments in which the user can explore. Another great application of VR is basically just to help scientists understand the data they collected underwater. Whenever there's three-dimensional data, it's not really easy to display it on a traditional 2D monitor. Like you always kind of have a distance to it. So when you take that to VR, the scientist can walk in and around the data. He can interact with it in a, in a natural way. And he's basically in the same room as the data. This is really useful for all kinds of oceanographic data, like 3D reconstruction of coral reefs, microscopic 3D images of phytoplankton. And in our case, what we did is we visualized phytoplankton acquired through a holographic microscope on board the RV Falcor. Even a tiny phytoplankton can suddenly be as big as a horse. And it's not just plain data anymore. Like the scientists can really explore it in a natural way. So if he wants to, for example, measure something, he can just take like a virtual ruler or virtual measurement band and just do it like he would do it in the real world. Phytoplankton's are so small. For me as a non-scientist, trying to understand them and interact with them as something that I cannot see unless it's being drawn is is pretty hard. <laughs> so being able to blow it up and interact with it would, would be really something fun and, and really engaging, I think. And I, I, know the, I know there were some folks back in Western Australia who were doing um, stereoscopic kind of three-dimensional imagery of shipwrecks. They were kind of in the marine archaeology discipline. And so it was helping. I know that they were using, I'm not sure if it was a virtual reality, but I know that they were using these three-dimensional maps of the underwater landscape to try and piece together what might have happened to a ship hundreds of years ago based on, um, yeah, a very, very dense three-dimensional data set, but being able to interact with it much more easily through these kind of cool new VR approaches. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we had someone who planned missions in Antarctica and they could go there in virtual reality and kind of walk around, figure out where oh, they put like wow. slow-mo cameras and things like that. So it's, it's really a great tool, like just to go where you, where you can't naturally go. What kind of setup do you need to create a virtual reality environment, like, say, if you're in a school? 
Well, at university, you have sometimes really huge setups. So like really rooms, like the holodeck, the so-called cave systems, but they're quite expensive. They're big and they were, they're kind of old. They were used to really research VR. And mm-hmm. what really changed recently, what really made it accessible to, to normal people is the mobile phone industry. So as I said before, for VR, you basically need a display in front of your head. And in some way, the display has to figure out where you're looking at. And all that you have in a mobile phone. Um, like you have a display, a small display you can put in front of your head and you have the sensors. So the only thing you need is basically a case for it. And there are even things which are called cardboard cases. It's really nothing else than a piece of cardboard with two lenses. You stick it together, you put your mobile phone in it, and you can do some VR with it. The great thing is it's really cheap, though it's a little bit limited in its application because you can't really move around. You don't have a controller, so it's really just something where you can see and rotate your head. If you want to do higher quality VR, you will need a, a like a real VR headset. But these even became way more affordable these days. Like you can get an Oculus Quest 2 for around $300. And that one has two controllers. It can even track the movement of your hands and you can really walk around with that in virtual reality. What kind of skills do you need to make those virtual reality environments? Do you need to be really good at computer coding? Well, of course, it's good if you have some coding knowledge. But to start with it, it's not really required anymore. Like there are a lot of tools which make it really easy to generate scenes. One of the tools I would highly recommend and which is free to use is Unity 3D. And Unity 3D is a game engine which is widely used for private fun projects, but with which companies even make computer games, like really big computer games. The great thing for Unity is that there are so many things already prepared that it becomes really easy to build something. You only have to plug some components together and you're basically ready to go. I also think like learning some coding skills is really useful for everybody anyways these days. And Unity is a great tool to do that as it's fun to apply the coding in computer games. I will stick some links to all the things that Ben has recommended into our resource packs if yeah. you're thinking of putting a lesson plan together or you just want to muck around with VR at home. With this Unity 3D in the background, I'm guessing that because you're creating a, a virtual world in three dimensions, it kind of replicates or imitates the physics of the real world. So, you know, like you said, if you throw something in there, it, it replicates how you would throw a ball in the backyard. But I, I mean, that, that, that's what I mean. That's already present like unity game engine has a physics engine so ben and his collaborators have created this vr experience called the phytoplankton zoo ben can you explain to us the phytoplankton zoo why you made it and how you went about creating it so the phytoplankton zoo was a fun application i built for an outreach event at waikiki aquarium in hawaii to celebrate the five-year anniversary of the rb phyco and in the application you have the size of a phytoplankton so you're really small and you dive in the ocean with a lot of phytoplankton swimming around you. You can then hunt after some phytoplankton, grab them, and, and once you have them grabbed, you see some basic information about them displayed. The hunting and the grabbing is kind of sounds easier than it is because they kind of move in different ways. And it was really fun to see the kids play the game and be really excited to that they really were excited to learn about the phytoplankton once they managed to grab it. And they were really like, hey, look, that is poisonous, and so on. So, so it was really fun. And the game was actually written in Unity 3D. At that time, I did not really have much experience with Unity 3D, but it only took me some evenings in my spare time to put it all together. Ben, did you have a team of artists to help you make up those 3D images of the phytoplankton? No, actually, <laughs> I did not. Yvonne already had the models from some prior outreach videos they did, and I could just, as I said, drag and drop them into Unity. <laughs> that's <laughs> and, great. <laughs> and, they were, and, and, and that's really one of the great things of Unity is that you do not really have to worry about how to get your models in. So 
So there is an artist behind the scenes there. It's just open access, so we don't have to ask for permission, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> but, but, but we, whoever they are, we give them very much credit. Thank you for making yes. them. And know that they're being used for good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> ben, we've got one more important question for you. National Science Week is all about food this year. So what is your favourite food and how can you connect it back to phytoplankton? I really do love hot pots. Of course, in some way, you, you have to mention that there would be no seafood in the hot pot if you wouldn't have phytoplankton. What's a hot pot? So hot pot is a, is a, a Chinese dish. You basically have a broth with some spicy soup in it. And then you throw Ooh. all kinds of things in it. You throw like meats that in it. Like you throw like, like vegetables in it. Yeah, all, all kinds of different things. And I think that's kind of where, for me, the connection to phytoplankton comes in. So phytoplankton has such a diversity of a lot of different phytoplankton. And Hot pot is kind of similar. You can really throw everything in. So the whole hot pot has such a diversity between tofu, different meats, um, different vegetables. Again, you can basically throw everything in it and eat it. <laughs> it's a whole ecosystem of food. A soup. Exactly. <laughs> nice. Cool. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ben, for joining us on the podcast today. And we hope that our listeners at home have learned a little bit more about how art and science work together for common goals. So if you're a kid who enjoys your art subjects just as much as the STEM ones, then hopefully we've given you some food for thought on how you might find ways to do both when you grow up. Are you all grown up, Jamie? Not a chance, Lachlan. I like to do Zelda marathons. I told you that. Why would I want to grow up? Now, Jamie, did you say something at the start of this episode about a big, amazing, exciting prize giveaway? Yep. so this year for national science week we're giving away an oculus quest vr headset and the ocean themed game ocean rift the world's first vr aquatic safari park we're also going to get you access to ben's phytoplankton zoo so you can swim around and grab phytoplankton as well so you can enter the draw as an individual or a school and we want to know from you in 50 words or less how will you use your new vr headset to excite somebody else about science so jump on our website, go to curious.com or our socials at go to curious to find out more. Thanks again, Kirsten and Ben. Episode two is coming up tomorrow. What's that all about, Jamie? Well, episode two is our biology lesson. So we're exploring the marine food web and speaking with Dr. Colleen Durkin from Moss Landing Marine Laboratories and Dr. Deb Steinberg from Virginia Institute of Marine Science. Now in Australia, we might not know those places, but they're actually very important oceanography centers. So we're really excited to talk to them. So thanks for tuning in, folks. And We'll see you next time. Actually, It's Phytoplankton is a Go to Curious production proudly supported by a National Science Week grant from the Australian Commonwealth Government. Thank you to all our expert guests collaborating on Season 2 and special thanks to co-presenters Ivana Setinich and Lachlan McKinna who work behind the scenes as script consultants. The series is prepared and written by me, Jamie Cool. I compose our theme music and create the resource materials on our website, gotocurious.com. Our fabulous logos are designed by Hannah at Boone Creative.